I want to start by reading something with you and see if this is familiar to anybody. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip <laughs> that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. Two. What, was, what, am I, what am I quoting from? Gilligan's Island. Can anybody finish that song? If you can, if you can, you watch too much TV as a kid growing up, right? When I was in elementary school, I remember going home and having a snack and watching some of those old Gilligan Island things. They're absolutely ridiculous that a guy, guys would go on a three-hour tour and get lost like that. And in fact, I can prove it because if you go to Balboa Bay, you can take a little tour and they show you where they filmed Gilligan's Island. It was pretty close to civilization. Um, but, you know, when you think about that, you think, well, how'd that all happen? Well, it was Hollywood writers and producers and directors created this crazy story that kids especially began to enjoy in afternoon reruns. Um, but when I, I think about that, I think sometimes you've heard the saying that truth is stranger than fiction. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today as we continue our series, uh, The Prisoner's Progress. We're going to see a shipwreck. And it really shouldn't have happened. Everything was pretty straightforward. They were going from Caesarea in what's modern-day Israel, and they were traveling across the Mediterranean Sea. It should have taken several weeks, you know, so it was a couple weeks tour, and they were supposed to land in Rome. But all sorts of crazy things happened in this, in this trip that they took, so much so that it's been recorded for us in the Bible for posterity, for us to take a look at. And there are lessons for us to learn from it today. So we're going to actually be looking at Acts chapter 27. It's a long chapter. There's 44 verses. So I'm going to uh, cut it down for us a little bit, give you a little bit of background. Verses 1 through 20 is the background, and you can read that for yourself later if you want to. But let me just tell you what's going on. Paul is a prisoner in Caesarea, and he has appealed to Caesar, who is the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he says, I want to take my case before him, and I want to talk to him. And the governor says, okay. Governor Felix says, you can do that. And so he allows him to. So now he's got to make the trip. Now, they're not going to let him go unattended. So they assign a man to him. And they assign a hardened, you know, uh, centurion, a tough old Roman centurion or officer who's going to make sure that he gets there safely. And we're told that the man's name is Julius. So Julius is going to take care of Paul. Now, Paul is a Roman citizen, right? And so Paul, you know, he's going to get certain rights, and they haven't proven him guilty. So even though he's a prisoner, they're going to treat him pretty well. In fact, they allow two of his closest friends to travel with him. One is his personal physician, a guy named Luke, who wrote the book, and that's why it's so personalized. And the other one is his loyal friend Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, Thessalonica, who nearly lost his life at a riot in Ephesus while he was following Paul earlier, but he continues to follow Paul. And uh, Julius is pretty nice. They get on the boat, they go up to Sidon, and Julius says, you can go visit your friends uh, in the church there. I'm sure he didn't just let him go, probably had a soldier with him, and he was chained to him. But he let him go visit with his friends. That was important because... Traveling was different in those days. You know, I just recently, Kurt and I recently went to Berlin, and, you know, you try fly on an airplane, and they give you food, and then you try to go to sleep, and then they give you more food, and then you try to go to sleep, and then they give you more food. I mean, they're always bringing food, it seems like. Um, but in those days, you had to provide your own food. So the church probably provided the supplies for Paul and his pals, and then they went on again. 
and they traveled to Myla, um, Myra. Myra's an island right near the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's really important why they went there, because when you take an airplane, you know how you fly in, and then you change, you can change planes? Well, we have that all planned out. You know in advance on your ticket where you're going to go. We knew we were going to go to Amsterdam, and then from Amsterdam we were going to go to Berlin. They didn't have that in those days, but this is what they do. You take a ship to a certain destination, and then you catch another ship the rest of the way. Well, Myra is an important place because it's right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And Alexandria, Alexandria and Egypt, they had more grain than anybody else in the world at that time. And that was a major city. And so they would take that all the way to Rome. And if you're going all the way across, well, Myra is going to be right in the middle. So that's a, that's a stopping point. Julius the centurion must have known that. It was strategic. He goes there and he meets with them there. And he basically commandeers this big old wheat ship. And he says, we'll just take this big old ship the rest of the way. This will be safe. We'll go all the way to Rome. Well, things started off going pretty well. But then they had some westerly wind. And the wind became so bad that they had to go alongside the coast of islands to get shelter to try to help them. And finally, they came to Crete, and they stopped at a place called Fair Havens. And Crete's a big old island. Um, and they said, uh, it's the one right there, right in the middle, that green one right there. And they said, well, you know, we gotta, we got to figure out how we're going to get to Rome here. Um, so what are we going to do? It's, it's almost wintertime. In fact... We know this, that Paul says it was the time of the fast, and that would be in reference to the Feast of the Tabernacles, what we call Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur always takes place between mid-September and mid-October, depending on the year. If it was AD 59, which most scholars think it was, it was mid-October. You do not, in those days in the ancient world, go across the Mediterranean Sea much later than that. I mean, September, you're cautious. It's suicidal after October because of all the storms. And so they have a meeting, and they say, what should we do? Nobody suggests that they try to go to Rome. Everything's been slowed down. They've got to stay there for the winter. The question is, do they stay there in Fair Havens, or do they move to a nicer port called Phoenix, about 50 miles away? That's not that far. It's, you know, along the coast. Should they do that instead? What do you think? Paul had an opinion. I mean, he's a citizen, you know, Roman citizen, and he's there, and he kind of raises his hand, and he says, I don't think we should go. I think we should stay. Paul knows something about ships. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 said he'd already been shipwrecked three times. So Paul knew more about sinking than sailing. But he knew something about sinking. So he says, I, I, we're safe here. Let's just hang out here for the winter. But the other people prevailed. They said, let's go to Phoenix. And so we get the song, by the time I get to Phoenix. No, that's, that's, that's not what happened. That's another song, another story. But uh, on their way to Phoenix, they never made it to Phoenix. They were just going along the coast, cruising, having a good old time. And they, went, they had to go around the corner to come back around to the northern side. And as they went around the corner, the winds blew them out. And what should have just been, you know, a three-hour tour, so to speak, you know, a few, few hours maybe to get there, all of a sudden they're out in the middle of the, the Mediterranean Sea. And in order to, to know what was going on in those days, they didn't have, you know, panels, you know, to tell them what was going on. They didn't have compasses. They looked to the stars, the moon, the, the sun, and it was all gone. Everything turned dark. They were in the middle of a storm. They knew they were going south. They didn't know how close they were getting 
to, to Africa. And Africa has, has quicksand as you get close to the shore. And that's called uh, the graveyard of ships. So they started dragging their anchor, and they did all sorts of things to try to keep their ship afloat and try to keep it bolstered against this horrible, horrible storm that's raging on and on and on. And finally, Luke says that they just basically all lost hope that they were going to make it. And when he says they all lost hope, who would that include? It would include Paul. It seems like Paul's own hope, his own faith was was faltering a bit. He was thinking, did I get something wrong, Lord? Do, do you not want me to go before Caesar? What's going on here? Is it all going to end? Did it end? No, because we've got a couple chapters left, so you know he made it. So what we're going to talk about today is survival at sea. How did they survive? We're going to give three reasons why they survived. And the first is that God prophesied it. Let's, uh, let me read to you uh, chapter 27, verses 21 through 26. It says, after the man had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have, been, you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and who, whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, man, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So they have a meeting, probably in the cavity of the ship, and they say, what are we going to do? And Paul speaks up again. And he says, remember, last time you didn't listen to me, and I was right, and we wouldn't be in this jam if it wasn't for you. Nah, 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 right? And he gets them all upset. Well, it probably it almost sounds like that. Paul can be a little bit annoying. He's very outspoken. Um, but I don't really believe that's what's happening here. It's more of a synopsis. But what Paul's essentially saying is this. Last time I spoke to you, and you kind of discredited me. You figured I'm not a sailor. sailor I don't have that much to say. But as you can see, I did know something. And so I do know something about the sea, and I wish you to listen to me. At the same time, I was still speculating. I didn't know for sure. It was just kind of a, 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 an educated guess. But this time, I want to come before you with certainty. I know for a fact some information that I think will encourage you. And then he begins to speak in sort of general terms about God. We need to understand he's speaking to superstitious sailors who had many gods. They believed in many gods and believed in many angels. And so he says, hey, um, I believe there's one God. And I have a relationship with him. And he sent an angel as a messenger to talk to me last night. And I want to tell you what he told me. The angel told me that I am going to make it to Rome. It's a fact. And I'm going to make it to Rome because God wants me to speak to the emperor who happened to be Nero. He wants me to speak to the most powerful man in the world with the most powerful message in the universe. He wants me to speak to him, and so I'm going to. And, and there's some good news and bad news attached to this. The good news is because you happen to be with me, God is going to be gracious to you, and you're going to make it too. The bad news is 
You're going to lose your ship, and we're going to crash on some island that we don't know about. There it is. Interesting information, huh? God gets us where he wants us to be. He will get us where he wants us to be. About a month out from now, there's a holiday coming. What do we call it in November? Thanksgiving. And some of you, you know, I see a couple kids here. Um, Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving um, starts with the pilgrims, right? And they, they traveled on what boat? Mayflower. And they went across the Atlantic Ocean. And can somebody tell me what happened when they got in the ocean? What happened to them? They had, started, they had a storm at sea, and they were starting to sink and all sorts of things. And where did they end up going? They ended up heading north. The storm at sea redirected them. They were supposed to go to Virginia, but they went up north to Massachusetts, where there wasn't jurisdiction, where they had more religious freedom, where they were able to lead some natives of the land into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and where they were able to lay out the Judeo-Christian values that started our country. That wouldn't have been possible had they landed where they were supposed to land. Was that just a coincidence? You ever think about things like that? Are those things, co- are, are there really coincidences? Or is God directing things and, you know, he, he's always in control? We saw that when we went to Berlin. We were amazed. The Millers, they were not even thinking about going on a missionary trip. Uh, they were, had just started planning a church, and yet God talked to them through some friends, and it got in their minds, and they realized God wanted them to go, so they go to Berlin. They don't know what they're going to do in Berlin. And they're trying to figure it out for like a year or so. They don't know what God wants them to do for sure. And then all the refugees came in. And it was a perfect fit for them. But as they're working with the refugees, they're not for sure who they're going to partner with in that. And then all of a sudden they're in a refugee camp and they meet the Hintons. And they end up becoming the best of friends and working with them. And the story goes on and on. If we're willing to follow God, God will do amazing things. And I I'm certain of this, that God will always get us where we need to be. So I want to encourage you today to examine life's storms. Examine life's storms. We all have them. There's different things that will happen. You may be relocated, lose jobs, lose loved ones, feel like the world is caving in around us. Those are the storms of life. What is God doing in our life? One thing I can tell you is we don't have to worry and fret as much as we do because God will get us where we need to be. You know, we beat ourselves up, but God will get us where we need to be. He's fully capable of doing that. How do we keep ourselves encouraged at such times? If you're not there, it's either because you're not, he doesn't want you there because he has other plans for you, or it's just going to happen in time. He's in control of it. If we're just holding on to him and working with him, he's going to work it out. Now, Paul, even Paul was having his doubts. It's okay to have your doubts because you'll go through tough times. But how does Paul bolster his encouragement, bolster himself? He meets with an angel. Now, most of us aren't going to meet with an angel. That can happen, but it's probably not going to happen for us. But how does God primarily speak to us today? How primarily does he give us his word today? Through the word of God, which is? Bible, right? I mean, he speaks just through the Bible. And here's an interesting thing in the Bible. You ever notice how repetitious the Bible is? 
Over and over again, it'll tell us the stories about how these guys crossed the Red Sea when they had no hope to get to the land that God wanted them to get to. How people were, you know, won battles because they needed to, 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 to conquer the land. They needed to have control of that land as God promised them that they would. How people, you know, overcame illnesses or even raised from the dead. And it shows us that God can do it. See, the point is, is the reason those are repeated is for us to see that God was victorious in the past and he will be victorious in the present. God is always in control and he will get done what he wants to get done. And if we're hanging on to him, we'll get to where we need to be when we need to be there. And so it's, it's great to look back and see what God has done in the past to encourage ourselves. But you know what else you can do? You can look at your own life and think of the past trials that you've been through, the storms that you've weathered, and remember how God got you through them. And as you remember how he got you through them, that encourages you for how he's going to get you through the next one. So I encourage you to do that, even with your family this week or with your small group, to talk about those, uh, those st storms that you've been through and how God got you through them. The second thing is that God uses Paul to care for the crew in verses 27 through 38. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and, some, uh, and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And so what happens now is it's about midnight, and the sailors have trained ears, right? They know what to listen for. And they start hearing the surf, and they're hearing it hit things. They can't see anything, but they're hearing the shore, you know, and the, and the rocks. They're hearing something's pounding. And so they take their instruments and they lower it down to be able to measure how deep the water is. And they find out it's pretty shallow and it's getting more shallow. They are near land, but they can't see it. So they put out their, all of their anchors to make sure that they don't float into one of the rocks in the middle of the night and they decide to wait and see what happens the next morning. But while they're doing that, some of them decide that they're going to escape. They're going to go find the land on their own. They don't trust Paul. They don't trust these people with this old ship. They're going to get out on their own. And so apparently they have their ship at the front, this little lifeboat at the front. So they go up to the front where the lifeboat is, and they, they, put their, they say, we're going to put another anchor here. And instead, they get the lifeboat, and they're about ready to escape. 
And Paul smells the ruse, and he's probably thinking, there's no reason they would put another anchor in the front. And so he tells the centurion, Julius, he says, these guys are trying to escape, and if they escape, we're going to be in trouble. We need all hands on deck, or we aren't going to get out. And so Julius cuts the ropes, and he throws out the lifeboat, and these guys are stuck. Now, here's something very interesting. We just looked at the principle that God will get you where you need to be, that God is sovereign and he's in control. What does that mean about us? Are we supposed to sit on our hands? Are we supposed to do something? This is an incredible interaction of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's going to get Paul to Rome, but Paul needs to participate in the process. He needs to be responsible and say, hey, if these guys go, we're not going to make it. And so God uses Paul's obedience to make sure these guys stay so that they can make it. Now what happens after that is they go down in the bowels of the ship again, apparently for another meeting, and you see that now they're starting to really listen to Paul, and he's become sort of the central figure of this whole drama. And Paul talks to them again. He says, you guys haven't eaten anything. It sounds like they haven't eaten anything at all, but probably the language here is hyperbole. It's like you've eaten very little. It's like, you, you know how, you know, at, uh, during the holiday season when your mom says, you haven't eaten anything after you've you know, already, you know, gorged yourself with food. There's more food. Can't you eat more? And so Paul is just saying, it seems like you guys haven't eaten anything you've, or you've eaten very, very little. And in order for us to survive, you need to eat more. You need your strength. You need to be responsible. I've told you God's going to get you there, but he's going to use you guys in the process. Uh, there, there's this balance between our love for God and, and our works and his, you know, working with God. You know, Martin Luther said that, um, he said that God doesn't need our works. People do. <laughs> God doesn't need our works, but the people around us do. You know, God's going to get us there, but he wants us to be part of that process. And so he says, you guys got to take care of yourselves. You got to eat. You got to get yourselves healthy. Then we'll get it. So tomorrow morning, we'll be ready to get this ship ashore. And the people are looking at him, big donut eyes, like, oh, man, I'm tired. I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. So Paul says, okay, I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to just talk about it. I'm going to eat. And he takes some bread, and he breaks it. And then what does he do? He gives thanks. He gives thanks for his meal. It's interesting. It's instructive. Do you know that every example we have of Jesus eating, the Lord's Supper, feeding the thousands, um, e eating at Emmaus, he, he always prays. And he always gives thanks for his meal. Paul gives thanks. Paul writes about giving thanks for meals. Seems to allude to it in, in um, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We don't do that as much in our Western world. Because we have food all the time. We become flippant about it. After all, we're the ones who work to get it, not God. We forget where that food comes from. If you're in another land, in most places in the world, you're lucky to have a meal every day. Anytime you get anything and you know the Lord, you know who you're thanking that you have anything to eat today. And Paul realizes that. And it's just an opportunity for him to give his God thanks. It's also a sacred moment, an opportunity for him to give an example that he trusts in the God of the universe. And as he prays, they can see his reverence. And it seems to have a real impact on these guys. It seems to really shake them to their core. Um, 
we, we're told there's 276 of them, and all of a sudden they're eating themselves, eating as much as they can, and after they're done, they're going to throw the rest of it out. Why? They're going to lose their ship anyway, and if they can get it light, they can get it closer to the shore. So they're believing what Paul's saying. Whether any of them come to know the Lord or not, we're not told. But I'd like to think that some did. I, I think of the example here that, you know, it's not enough just to say that we're going to follow the Lord, but it's, we have to follow him. The two things have to work together. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not just that you say, I'm, I believe that God's going to take care of me, but then you act on it. I, I'm going to do something. I really believe we're going to be okay tomorrow, so I'm going to eat the food. I'm going to get my strength up, and if the food's gone, it's gone. I'm going to trust God with this thing. And they see Paul's example. They see that he has faith in God. He's talking about it, but they see what he does to back up what he says. I know when our son was sick, you know, when he was diagnosed with leukemia um, a number of years ago now, the, the big issue was us saying, you know, first thing we said, what you're supposed to say, you know, we said what you're supposed to say. We're going to cling to Christ through this crisis. Um, but what we found out quickly was people were watching to see if we would. Sometimes I felt like I was a little bit on stage. People were watching me all the time. And I have to admit, I, I didn't all the time. I struggled at times through that process. But by God's grace, we got through it. Um, the one who, who most impressed me was my son. I never saw anybody die more courageously than he did. Um, and I remember the day that they told him he wasn't going to make it, uh, they went to the floor of the clinic and they found Amy. Amy had been with my son since he was, um, since he was a baby, uh, since he was, what, 22 22 months old, she was like his first nurse. They told Amy, you may never see him again. So Amy came down, and they gave her permission to unplug him and take care of him and everything, and she had on a smock, and on her smock it had little bees all over it. And Kyle said to her, he said, Amy, he said, that's one good thing. And she said, what's that? He said, I'm never going to be stung by a bee. <laughs> and uh, she remembered that, and she took that as an example of his faith that he was practical, that he was, had faith, that he knew where he was going. And it really shook her to her core. It really ministered to Amy. And about a month ago, Amy shared that story on Facebook on a post. And it just absolutely lit up. And we saw it. We couldn't believe it. All these people, people we'd forgotten about, people from the past were writing in about this experience and about our son and about some of the things that happened. And I realized how powerful that time was. You know, you kind of forget, and you think, well, it's in the past. I guess it maybe did, you know, something good came out of it. But you look back and you say, a lot of good came out of that. It was a painful time, but, you know, the lesson is, is, is he lived what he, he believed in. And when you live what you believe in, it has an impact on people's lives. And I want to ask you this question now, which is, where do you stand? Where do you stand with your life? Do you live what you believe in? Is your faith genuine? I mean, we think even in the context that we're talking about here, is your faith genuine when it, when it comes to your time? You know, they, they, Paul's, you know, being impatient. Are you willing to wait on God? How about your work? Are you willing to trust in God for your work? Or do you have to try to make it all happen on your own? Are you the person who can never miss work, can never take any time off, 
Are you the person who, you know, can, can never, you know, do, you know, never, never unplug from your phone or from your computer because they need me? You know, God can take care of it. Are you trusting him or are you trusting yourself? In your relationships, are you trusting God or are you the one who's manipulating and trying to make things happen? When you sit down to eat a meal, do you thank God that he's provided it? Do you use that to kind of catapult you to thank God for things all day long throughout the day, as God says that we should? We should be praying, as Paul says, we should be praising, talking to God all day long, unceasingly, and we should be thanking him for all the things that he does. Is that part of your life? It should be. Are we praying, reading our Bibles, building relationships with others, getting involved in small groups like Clifton said? Are these things happening in our lives? Are we telling others about Christ? Because I'll tell you what's going to happen if it hasn't already you will face a crisis. This is a fallen world. You all know that, right? Everybody here is going to die. You understand that. And dying doesn't usually come pleasantly. So are you prepared for it? How are you living today? How are you living today? Have you yet come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, have, have you admitted that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave um, to save you? Have you chosen to give your life to Him and live for Him forever? And if you haven't, come and talk to us about that because that's the starting point. And then from there, we continue to live with Him throughout our lives. And He gives us the strength to get through the crises that we face. And we can be a witness through that as we do that. Now, the last thing is that God uses the centurion to save Paul, verses 42 through 44. Actually, it starts in verse 39, so I put it in the wrong place. Verse 39 through 44. Uh, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. And the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this very way, everyone reached land safely. They came to an island. They'll later find out it's Malta. Finding Malta was like finding a needle in the haystack. It was miraculous that in the storm that they had landed, the, really the only place they could land that was going to save them and keep them from perishing. Uh, so they came into this big bay, and everything happened like, Paul, like God had predicted. It, sh it crashed. The, sh the ship crashed and was destroyed and all the people got to land safely because God's prophecies always come true. God's prophecies always come true. But here's an interesting thing. They wanted to kill the prisoners. That was standard operating procedure because if a prisoner escaped, the soldier that was responsible for him was killed. They didn't want to die, so they just standard operating procedure, just kill them all. But Julius uh, saves Paul's life again. He steps in. He says, no, no, no. We're not going to save. I like this little guy. We're going we're to keep him around. And in the process, everybody gets saved just like 
Paul said that they would. I find it interesting that God will use people that do not know him to save people that do know him. You ever seen that? God uses, he'll take people that do not know him to save people that do know him. Look at Paul's life just even recently in the last few chapters. Lysias was uh, the commander of the garrison in Jerusalem and the Jews were in a mob and trying to kill Paul and he comes to his rescue and saves him. And Paul's nephew comes and says they're going to ambush my uncle and saves the day. And later the governors, both Festus and Felix, they sound like a comedy team, um, those guys, they jump in and they keep Paul first in prison, but then they let him go to Rome. And God uses all these players to get done what he wants to get done. I only wonder about Julius, and this is the reason why, because it's unusual that they would give his first name um, because he wasn't in charge of a garrison or anything to check out, anything to check for him historically. And it almost makes me wonder if his name was used because the people reading this, brothers in Jesus Christ, would say, oh, that's, I know Julius, if he was somebody who had given his life to the Lord. We'll find out when we get to heaven. But I have a question for you, one more. Who has saved you? Who has saved you? You know, think of times when you were in a desperate situation and God saved you. And I'm thinking recently, um, the, the Calhouns went to, on a trip to Calistoga, this is before the fires. It was Connie's birthday, and they visited with their daughter Katie, and they were coming back on the road. And some of you maybe know the story. It's a windy road, and a car actually, this lady was started swerving and actually hit them. They can tell the story more in detail better than I, but the gist of it is, is that um, Kurt was able to keep the cars from colliding, but the cars still hit each other. I mean, hit, hit from a head, head on, but they still collided. They still hit each other, and both cars were totaled. But what really was amazing is, of course, we were so thankful that the Calhouns were safe, but one of the things they shared with me is when they got out of the car, they realized that if this lady had not hit their car, her car would have gone over the embankment and gone down. There was no guardrail there, and she probably would have plunged to her death. Running into their car saved her life. There are really no coincidences. God is in control of everything, and he uses the strangest circumstances sometimes for reasons we don't know. Perhaps it was to keep this lady alive, maybe for her to come into a personal relationship with him as she took stock of what had just happened to her. How has God saved your life from crashing? Some of you have some hairy stories, I know. Some of you have some situations where you probably should have died and God saved you, maybe from an accident, maybe from an illness. Or maybe it was just sort of a, a, an emotional thing, a traumatic thing that you went through in your life, a crisis in your life that God got you through. And I encourage you to take stock in that. And here, ask this question, the same question that Clifton asked last week, which I thought was so poignant, the question of how has your life changed? Remember that? If it's for real, it should have changed. How has your life changed as a result of what you've gone through and how God has saved you? It's hard to understand God, you know, impossible to figure him out. The way he does things is his ways are different than our ways, as uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 55. Matt Chandler put it this way in his book, Explicit Gospel. He said, trying to figure out God is like trying to catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. And that would be the same in the Mediterranean Sea, I'm sure. And so 
I would just say this, is that uh, we may not be able to figure God out, but we know from history that his ways are always the best ways. And so we benefit most when we follow his ways, when we walk alongside him, or in this case, swim alongside him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this example in Paul's life. And uh, thank you for how you worked through his life and the example of how he struggled um, with his faith, but yet he persevered, he hung on to you, and you got him through, and he was an example even through those hard times. In fact, he was most effective um, as he went through those hard times and continued to talk about you and continued to praise you. I pray that the same would be true with us, that each person here would either come to know you, and if they do know you, as most I know do, that they'd grow more deeply in you, that they might be an example um, for the storms that they go through in their lives. And I thank you for the storms you've got us through, and we praise you for that. And um, continue to trust in you and know that you will be faithful to the end. Amen. <laughs>